welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. My hope today is pretty simple. I hope that when this is over and we walk out of here after we celebrate the table, my hope is that the goodness of Jesus and the goodness of his kingdom would once again amaze us, bewilder us, leave us rather speechless, and even utterly amazed. About 10 days after Jesus left the earth and ascended to his father, the Holy Spirit came upon the first disciples and a new work of God began in them and through them. And the church was born the day the Holy Spirit came. Acts 2, as we just read, describes the scene. A large crowd of God-fearing Jews convened in Jerusalem for, to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. And this was one of the three pilgrimage feasts of the Israelites. So whoever could make the journey would make it because it was a party Uh, It was party time in Jerusalem. And this feast commemorated the giving of the law to Moses and the giving of the law to the Israelites after they had come out of their slavery in Egypt. And it also commemorated the wheat harvest. So they were celebrating the fact that God had provided their food. And so the disciples, as we read, are gathered in a house when suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire resting on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in different languages. So Luke describes the coming of the Spirit using imagery that would have been very familiar to the Jewish people. In the Old Testament, God's presence was sometimes depicted as wind, literally as the breath of God. Manuel just led us in this wonderful, worshipful exercise of breathing in and breathing out, The breath of God, or wind, was often one of the ways God was depicted in the Old Testament. His presence was also depicted as fire. Moses saw a burning bush, but the bush was not consumed, and God was in the fire. So, the writer of Acts, this guy Luke, is strategically connecting God's presence with his people, Israel, in the past, to his presence with his people, the church, In the present. And so God's plan to rescue and restore humanity and all of creation took a giant leap forward on the day of Pentecost. Why? Because now, unlike before, God's presence through his spirit was in each of his people. So a new era began on that day. And there's a whole bunch we can unpack. In this story, but the past several weeks, if you've been around a bit, you know that we have been talking about various practices and spiritual disciplines we engage in together as a church to become a community who breathes life into each other and into the world. There are obviously individual spiritual practices. We've been talking about social spiritual practices, communal spiritual practices that shape us as a faith community to breathe life into each other and to breathe life into the world. And today we're talking about the practice of reconciliation. Certainly, reconciliation between God and people. Vertical reconciliation, we might call it. But more specifically today... This practice has to do with horizontal reconciliation between people who have conflict with each other, between groups that disagree with each other. Reconciliation has to do with 
correcting relational disparities and healing relational injustices. The practice of reconciliation forms us to be individuals and a faith community that graciously and lovingly engages with with those who are different from us. It shapes how we think about and respond to our enemies. And reconciliation, obviously, is at the heart of the Christian good news. In addition to all that, as some of you may know, today is the last Sunday before I disappear on sabbatical for a while. It struck me earlier that this is all happening on Pentecost. The Spirit comes, the pastor leaves. It's kind of a good thing. Actually, there's a lot in that that is worth reflecting on. Uh, So, this is a last message of sorts for me, at least for a while. Now, fear not, it's actually pretty short, at least relative to what I normally do. Sort of short, at least. But when I think back over the past six or seven years, nothing has been more formative for me. Nothing. Or to my understanding of the church. Or to my understanding of the mission of the church than the practice and hard work of reconciliation. Some of you, actually, have courageously walked into the process of reconciliation with me about our relationship. You've come to me or I've come to you, and I'm talking about over, in some cases, years' time. A process, slow and tedious, has unfolded and because of your courageousness and graciousness and God's activity in that process, we've experienced a degree of reconciliation. And that process of reconciliation has formed me to be a little bit more like Jesus. In fact, over the past two months, personally, I've had four pretty significant reconciliation breakthroughs. That might be because I'm screwing up in relationships all the time, so i got all these opportunities. But I have to say, I experience God and I experience his kingdom in this practice of reconciliation. See, where reconciliation is happening, the kingdom of God is present. And obviously, the starting point is God taking the initiative and doing the work to reconcile us to himself through Jesus Christ. And he did this when we were as far away from God as we could possibly be. When God took the initiative to reconcile you, to reconcile me, the animosity and the hostility between us and God could not have been any higher. And if we don't believe this, if we somehow sort of tame the distance that was between us and God, shorten it, or make it not quite that much, or maybe there was some animosity but not that much. If we massage it and don't realize that the animosity and the hostility between us and God could not have been any higher when he initiated reconciliation with us, if we don't believe this, then we won't be very committed to doing the work of horizontal reconciliation. See, there is no person or group or other in our lives today who is further from us than we once were from God. Not even close. And the extent to to which we know this in our bones and in our blood forms our motivation and our courage, one way or the other, to practice reconciliation. So the crazy thing is that the tension and the conflict and the division in our relationships 
and in our society is the perfect space for God's kingdom to break in and transform. In those places and relationships where there is hostility, where there is difference, where there is conflict, the kingdom of God is near. And God wants to bring the shalom of his reconciliation into those spaces and places. That first Pentecost, Jerusalem was crowded with people from every corner of the Roman Empire. People who lived in different places, had different cultural traditions, and spoke, as we heard, different languages. And when the Spirit came upon the disciples, this diverse gathering of people heard the wonders of God declared in their own language. The disciples were empowered by the Spirit to proclaim good news in a language they did not know. And they proclaimed it to those in the crowd who did know that language. So lock into this for just a second. God's work in this new era started with God reconciling all sorts of different kinds of people to himself through Jesus. And then each of these different people became part of the new community of God's people, living under his leadership together and learning how to navigate their differences under the guidance and grace of Jesus together. When the Spirit of God filled and empowered the first disciples in the way we just read, I imagine that later on that night, later on in the, on the evening of Pentecost, as they were maybe chomping pizza and debriefing a bit, the disciples, I think, realized a big piece of this whole saga finally fell into place. Imagine between bites of pepperoni, they discussed how serious God was about changing the world. How serious he was about this business of reconciliation and new creation. How serious he was about shalom. About his flourishing and his goodness flooding into every corner of the universe. And how serious he was about this group of ragtag disciples being the means through which this flourishing would flood every corner of the universe. The first disciples, the first church, and every disciple and every church thereafter is filled and empowered by the Spirit of God to go and do the hard work of reconciliation and shalom. To be agents of reconciliation in a fractured and fallen world. And we breathe life into each other and into the world when we engage in the practice of reconciliation. We bring kingdom shalom into a world desperately in need of it. And again, it all begins with God reconciling himself, reconciling us to himself through Christ. And then it radiates next into our relationships with each other and with the other, whomever they may be. We experience it from God vertical. And then we become an agent of reconciliation horizontal. And the other in our lives could be a friend, Parent, child, sibling, spouse, where there's tension, where there's conflict, where there's difference, where there's disagreement. The other could be a co-worker. The other could be those of a different race, different religion, different sexual orientation. The other could be the Democrats. The other could be the Republicans. The other could be someone in the church. You can see them right now. 
whose words or actions hurt you? Those whom God has reconciled to himself are to be agents of reconciliation to whoever is another. So reconciliation is a core practice for the people of God. And it's a core practice, especially now, today. Why? Because our culture is deeply divided over everything. Race, politics, age, gender, sexual identity, abortion, guns, presidents, truth, you name it. And often, and sadly these days, the church and Christians mimic the culture. Increasingly, it seems to me, Christians are drawn into this game of blaming and brawling with some other, all in the name of truth, and the fracture just widens. Several years ago, I read some words that have stuck with me ever since. The world runs on antagonisms. It is always easy to stir up a crowd to hate an object or a group we are against than to gather both sides in one place to be present to each other. But the group that gathers in antagonism will not last long. And once the catharsis is over, it will eventually need another episode of rage to gather the troops. Now, this is just my observation. It may not be worth the paper it's printed on. But in many Christians and in many churches these days, the intoxication of antagonism has replaced the gritty work of reconciliation. It's just easier to be against fill in the blank than to be for reconciliation. But followers of Jesus are followers of a reconciler. He came to us incarnation, in the flesh, face to face. He constantly stepped toward us versus them tensions, and he did so with a ministry and a heart and a passion for reconciliation. He sought to spread the shalom of the kingdom right into the conflicts and tensions and screaming matches of his day. So we follow him. And we follow him by doing the hard work of reconciliation to gradually and slowly shrink the distance between us and the other, calm the hostility, heal the fracture, make peace. And here's the thing, and you know this, it's really hard work. It's really slow work. It requires great dependence on the Spirit of God. It requires patience. It requires spirit-cultivated humility and a willingness to listen and learn from the other instead of dismissing and belittling them. But we breathe life into broken relationships and into a divided world when we are agents of reconciliation. There's this smart guy named James K.A. Smith. He writes and puts it this way. In a broken and fragmented world, the church is called to be the first fruits of a new creation by embodying a reconciled community. And the way we begin to learn that is at the communion table. The habits and practices of examination and reconciliation that are part of the Eucharist are like training wheels meant to let us try out forgiveness and reconciliation. And in this respect, the Eucharist is just a macrocosm of what the church is called to be as the new humanity. 
He continues, a community that gathers, irrespective of preferences, tastes, class, or ethnicity, in order to pursue a common good. I often tell my children that one of the reasons we go to church is to learn to love people we don't really like that much. People we find irritating, odd, and who grate on our nerves. I love what Smith says because it envisions a church community filled with differences and conflicts and disagreements. And it counters the idea of a church community where I am with others who think as I do, vote as I do, look like I do, complain about the same things I do, interpret social problems as I do, vote as I do. I think I mentioned that one already. See, I don't know what reconciliation even means in a context where those around me generally agree with me on most things to begin with. I don't know what unity in a local church means when most of the people in the church are uniform. When the church was born, it was instantly filled with people who didn't look the same, talk the same, think the same, or live in the same kind of area. In the words of Scott McKnight, the church was a community of difference, E-N-T-S, not E-N-C-E, not a community of similars. And there's a vision here I fervently hope we pursue and continue to pursue. And maybe it will be fully in place by the time I return in the fall. Here's the vision. We are becoming a community of healing and restoration and reconciliation in this broken world. All of the differences, all of them, that create tension and antagonism and pressure and anger and screaming and yelling in the world gather at this table of reconciliation where there is grace and healing and forgiveness. People who are unlike us find Jesus and find hope and love and grace in our church and at this table. Oak Hills would be a people others would be baffled by because they would experience our church and be unable to figure out how so many different kinds of people can be so connected and united around Jesus. It's a vision that we would be so weird. It could not be easily explained. So different. Wait a minute. Why are you there with them? How does that work? It works because of this guy named Jesus. Yeah, but you vote differently. You think differently. You believe this about this issue. They believe that about that issue. Why aren't you fighting? Why aren't you screaming? Why aren't you yelling? Well, we disagree. We go face to face. We process it out believing Jesus is in that activity. But at the end of the day, the umbrella we live under is an umbrella called Jesus. The meta-narrative we live under is a meta-narrative called Jesus Christ is King. And all this other stuff is happening under that meta-narrative. So we sit with one another with calmness and humility and with our ears working twice as hard as our mouths. And we're present with each other instead of distancing ourselves from those who don't see it our way. 
a vision that we would be so weird. It could not be easily explained. And then when we have a fractured relationship within our local body here, we do what God did. We walk toward the fracture best we can. We do our best to bring the shalom of reconciliation just a little bit at a time. In addition, we as a body continue to listen and discern where God is leading us to be agents of healing and reconciliation amidst the fractures out in our society. So we step into and we step toward sins like racism, oppression, violence, and many others where God's shalom is desperately needed. The work is incredibly hard. The work is incredibly slow. The work is incredibly imperfect. The work is mind-bogglingly frustrating. We can't do it all, but we can do something. But this much we know. God did not reconcile us to himself to give us a sweet little life shielded from the ugly and the agony of this world. He reconciled us so we would breathe reconciliation into this fractured world and into fractured souls, and into fractured relationships. And again, it's slow and tedious, and it often seems like small work and hidden work. But it's not small, nor is it hidden from God. We live out the kingdom, and we pursue reconciliation in little ways that aren't so little. We do small things in the name of kingdom shalom, but they are not small. Because it is precisely by displaying the goodness of the kingdom through our lives, through our actions, and in our relationships that God ever so slowly transforms the utter chaos of this world. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to continue to worship you. To reflect upon the careful, thoughtful promptings you give us to be agents of reconciliation and shalom in this divided, angry, violent world. We continue to reflect upon how so often This begins with very tiny moves that aren't so tiny. So I pray as we continue to imagine what it would be like to have a Pentecost break out here. And in our differences, we lay down the urge to be right. We lay down the pressure to fix. We trust you as the spirit who has come. And we give ourselves fully to the work of your kingdom. These things we pray in Jesus' name.